And is it always what you describe here? The one with whom this young woman has been working? Maybe it's time to make our move. Tonight is the night of Boaz's barley harvest at the threshing floor. Take a bath. Put on some perfume. Get all dressed up and go to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until the party is well underway and he's had plenty of food and drink. When you see him slipping off to sleep, watch where he lies down and then go there. Lie at his feet to let him know that you are available to him for marriage. Then wait and see what he says. He'll tell you what to do. Ruth said, If you say so, I'll do it, just as you told me. She went down to the threshing floor and put her mother-in-law's plan into action. Boaz had a good time, eating and drinking his bill. He felt great. <laughs> then he went off to get some sleep lying down at the end of a stack of barley. Ruth quietly followed. She lay down to signal her availability for marriage. In the middle of the night, the man was suddenly startled and sat up. Surprised, this woman asleep at his feet. And who are you? He said. I am Ruth, your maiden. Take me under your protecting wing. You're my close relative, you know, in the circle of covenant redeemers. You do have the right to marry me. God bless you, my dear daughter. What a splendid expression of love. And when you could, you could have had the ownership of any of the young men around. And now, my dear daughter, don't you worry about a thing. I'll do all you could want or ask. Everybody in town knows what a courageous woman you are. A real prize. You're right. I am a close relative to you, but there is one who closer than I am. So stay the rest of the night. In the morning, if he wants to exercise his customary rights and responsibilities as the closest covenant redeemer, he'll have his chance. But if he isn't interested as God lives, I'll do it. Now go back to sleep until morning. Ruth slept at his feet until dawn. But she got up while it was still dark, so she wouldn't be recognized on her way home. Then Boaz said to himself, No one must know that Ruth came to the threshing floor. Bring the shawl more weary and spread it out. Ruth took off her shawl and spread it out. And he poured it full of barley, six measures, and put it on her shoulders. Then she went back to town. When she came to her mother-in-law, they only asked, And how did things go, my daughter? Ruth told her everything that the man had done for her, adding, He gave me all this barley besides six quarts. He told me, You can't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi said, Sit back and relax, my dear daughter, until we find out how things turn out. That man is going to fool around. Mark my words, he's going to get everything wrapped up today. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this beautiful story of Ruth, for the 
artistic storytelling, but mostly, God, for the beautiful message of hope and grace and life it speaks to us. And we pray, God, that you would now speak. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. So here at Knox, we have been looking at this book of Ruth during the season of Advent. Now, every Advent, you know, we light these candles. Every Advent season, at the darkest time of the whole year, we light candles. Despite all the recurring brokenness in the world, despite all that is dark and broken and painful, and all that afflicts us that seems to come up again every year, year after year, every year, nonetheless, we light a candle and we confess the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. We light a candle and we hope. We remind ourselves that the story of the world is not one of despair, even though a whole lot of our news might convince us, even though it seems very dark. We remind ourselves that the true story of the world is not what gets played out on our news cycles or on our social media feeds. They only tell part of the story. The bigger, the truer story of the whole world is that there is a very good, active God at work in this world, often behind the scenes, but ever so present everywhere. And he is at work. And he is for us. And so we light a candle and we hope. The book of Ruth is like a candle of hope. Because remember, the book of Ruth begins telling us it was a very dark time. It was the time of the judges, it says at the beginning of Ruth, which means it was dark, it was brutal, it was mean. Everyone was out for themselves. That's all they were. It was, an un, it was a, a selfish time. And people started to believe this is actually the story of the world. This is how things work. Pain, suffering, selfishness, brutality. This is just the way the world is, people thought. This is the way the book of Ruth begins, right? You might remember if you've been here the past couple of weeks, it begins in despair, in emptiness. There is this woman, a widow, Naomi. She's lost her husband. She's lost her only children, her two sons. Everything is gone. She's devastated. It is emptiness and bitterness. And Naomi so fully identifies with that story that she is telling of her life, this one of emptiness, of bitterness, that she says, no longer call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. Naomi thinks she knows her story, but she gets it wrong. Because at the midpoint of the entire story, the literary dead center of the story, two verse, chapter 2, verse 20, at the very center of the book, her eyes are open to another story that is actually at work, that is the true story, the real story of her life. The whole book of Ruth pivots on 2, verse 20, where Ruth, uh, Naomi, uh, uh, finds out her narrative that she has been telling herself of emptiness and bitterness is not her story, actually. Naomi cries out, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She comes alive to this reality that despite all the brokenness that she's experienced, and it's very real, right? 
She no longer has a husband. She no longer has two sons. Despite the pain, the suffering, the affliction, all of a sudden she sees there is another force of good at work in the world and hope begins to flicker in her life. She realizes she's part of another story, a story where a good God is at work, faithfully at work, and so she hopes again. Now, how often doesn't that happen to us? You know, you think you know what's going on in your life. You think you know the story that you're a part of, but you find out in a moment of beautiful, blinding clarity, you didn't understand it at all. You had no idea, and in that moment, you thought you were in one story, and all of a sudden you find out, oh my goodness, I am in a way better story. We think we know our story, but so often we get it wrong. And this is so important for us to hold because the life we live leads out of the story that we hold to be true about our lives. And so if we are holding to a wrong, false narrative about who we are, about our lives, our lives are going to be misshapen. They're going to be distorted. Which makes me wonder, what is the story of your life that you're telling yourself? Right? What is the narrative you have of your life that you are constantly reminding yourself, saying, yep, this is it, this is my life? I know you don't have to live long, to know life will smack you in the face often enough, right? And you will get disappointed, and you will suffer, and you will get hurt in ways you never saw coming. And that confusion might make you wonder, where is God in all this, right? What, what sort of story is going on here? I don't think I like this story, but it's the one that's playing out. And we can feel anxious. We can tell ourselves, I'm just alone in this world. I failed so badly. I'm a failure. I gave in again to some temptation. I'm such a loser. Maybe you think the story of your life is one of failure, of inadequacy, of just never measuring up, not being enough. Maybe it's a story of hurt because you've been hurt again and again. Maybe you feel like Naomi. You're living into a story where all you see is emptiness or maybe bitterness where you struggle to see any force of good at work that might turn this story around. All of us choose some story to live by. And again, if the stories we tell of ourselves are wrong stories, we are going to live distorted lives, and those stories are going to strangle hope in us. But in 2 verse 20, the center of the story, Naomi's eyes get opened up and she finds out the narrative that she's been telling about herself of emptiness and bitterness, it is not her story. And so she hopes again. And people who hope are dangerous people, hey? People who hope are dangerous people. There is a scene in the Hunger Games. I don't know if you remember it. Hunger Games is this dystopian uh, drama that's told out where it's interesting. There's, there's not a shred of religion in the whole thing and there are oppressed peoples and the one president who oversees this wicked system says to his game master, a little hope is effective, but a lot of hope is dangerous because hopeful people are dangerous. Because hopeful people, 
people who are possessed by a bigger story, possessed by a faith of God at work in the world, all of a sudden they make plans for a future they believe in, right? We see in chapter 3 what men and women who believe in a good future in God, who have hope, when they see their part of that good story, we see what they start doing. And what they start doing is they start plotting and planning and scheming to do good. In the first part of the chapter, you can see Naomi almost sort of going like this. And she's plotting and planning. That's the power of hope. It helps us dream again. Hope helps us think up ways to do good. Hope helps us pursue in faith ventures of holy purpose. It's hope based in the confidence in a sovereign God, and it gives us this this impulse, right, to live with this intention and purpose to do good. This chapter has three clear sections in it. Chapter three, the first section is on Naomi and all the plans she makes, and then on Ruth and all the plans and purposes and actions she takes, not only in response to Naomi, but something of that she does herself. And then Boaz, his plans and purposes, and then ends with Naomi filled with confidence in the power of goodness of God. So it begins with Naomi hatching this plan. She's looking to the future. She's been emboldened, right, by this future, this new story that she's a part of. And she starts risking because she's a dangerous, hope-filled person. She's no longer a victim. People who hope aren't victims any longer. Uh, and as long as the story of Naomi was that she was telling herself was the wrong story, she could only say, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She was hopeless. She had no plans. But now that she recognizes, no, there's another story going on, her hope comes alive and the overflow is this holy intention and purposefulness. And interesting, she's no longer looking at herself. Before, she's just so focused on her emptiness, but now she's focused on Ruth. And the first thing she says is, we need a home for you, Ruth, and we're going to make a plan to get you settled, to get you protected. Her concern is entirely on Ruth and that she might have a place of care and security and she makes a plan. I think this is instructive for us as a church. We need to help each other hope in God, to keep our hope in God. Because you know what? Hopeful churches are always planning and scheming and strategizing about the good they can do wherever God has planted them. Churches that feel no hope You know what they do? They develop sort of this maintenance mentality. And they just go through the motions year in, year out. But when a church knows that that the kindness of God is the narrative story going on, when we know God's plans are not to harm, but to give us a good future, hope comes alive. And our holy purpose isn't just to avoid sin. No, no, no. It becomes all about about how we can actively, intentionally do good, how we can participate in God's full earth redemption here in the city, in our families, in the world around us. And so Naomi hopes and she plans and she plots and all those plans are focused on a person, on Boaz, who is something called a kinsman redeemer. Now, what is that? 
we're going to get a little window into some old Jewish uh, customs, social customs. A kinsman redeemer. We're going to see more about this next week, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But in Israelite law, a kinsman redeemer was someone who had the right to buy the ancestral land of someone who had lost it. So when Israel had this promised land, everyone got a little portion, a little parcel of it, and it was theirs in perpetuity. But sometimes they lost it, sometimes they sold it. Naomi and her family sold theirs as they left for Moab. So she has no home, she has everything gone. But now a kinsman redeemer was someone who, if they're willing to be generous with their own money, had the right to buy back that ancestral land for the family that had lost it. They would have to use their own money, and the person who currently owned it had to sell it, whatever market price it was, whether they wanted to sell it or not. Problem with this relationship, this scenario too, is this kinsman redeemer not only had to purchase the land, but they had to marry the person involved in this too, which was Ruth. And remember, Ruth is an outsider, and not just an outsider, she's a hated outsider. She's a Moabite, we're told. So this kinsman redeemer, Boaz, would have to not only use his own funds to pay for the property, to buy it for the family, but then he would also have to marry this woman of a despised race to reestablish her line. And so it's a long shot for Naomi, this plan, right? But remember, she's living out of a different story. So she's all right, let's roll the dice, let's risk. I'm okay, because there's a good God working things out here. And so she and Ruth hatch a pretty risque plan. Ruth is to go to Boaz, who's in the threshing floor. Now, the the season of threshing, when the the harvest was brought in and they would thresh the the wheat, um, and it was a time of celebration, a big party was thrown. Um, And so there would be feasting and dancing and drinking. Um, And so Ruth says, uh, Naomi says, Ruth, go put on your best stuff. Little spritz of perfume, make yourself smell good. Go to the threshing floor. And after Boaz, you know, he's had his couple of beers, had a full belly of food, and he's sleepy, and he drifts off to sleep. Sneak in, lift the cloak to uncover his feet, and lie down at his feet. Now, a lot of Bible commentators have spent a whole lot of time trying to figure out what is the meaning of this phrase, she uncovered his feet. Um, Some believe it's it's sort of a sexual image that he would uncover a whole lot more than his feet. Um, Other commentators think that uh, the uncovering of the feet is a way of revealing Boaz's own vulnerability, like Naomi and Ruth were vulnerable. My favorite interpretation is um, that it was just a really wise plan to make him wake up with cold feet and find Ruth there. Regardless of what it is, Naomi says to Ruth that when Boaz wakes up, he'll tell you what to do. Interesting thing is, Ruth does all that Naomi says, but doesn't listen to this last part. Because when Boaz wakes up, it's not Boaz telling Ruth what to do, it's Ruth telling Boaz what to do. Right? He wakes up, says, who are you? And he says, I'm your servant. Spread your cloak over me, for you are next of kin. Now, for anyone paying attention, especially in that patriarchal society of which Ruth's uh, society was, Ruth is being so bold. She has stepped out of every social convention here 
and done something pretty bold. She has done, what she's done is she's just proposed to Boaz. So instead of waiting for Boaz to muster up the courage to do what she hoped, Ruth proposes marriage to him. I want you to be the kinsman redeemer of Naomi, and to do that, marry me. You know how bold and unconditional, uh, uh, non-traditional that sort of behavior was? Which I love. Can we stop perpetuating any myth that the Bible and the Christian faith, you know, traffics in all sorts of sexism? Um, This is a beautiful, bold, almost feminist story here. Ruth is not a victim here. Being in God's story for us does not mean that we wait passively letting things happen to us. No, we're called to initiate. We're called to act in faith based on what God is doing. And it's so interesting. Ruth here is named a Moabite, an outsider, six different times. She's pinned outsider, outsider, outsider. You don't belong, Ruth. And yet she gets into God's story. And she does it by stepping out of the social roles that have been imposed on her by others. Roles of a daughter-in-law, a Moabite, a gleaner, you know, which was sort of the lowest of the low, the poor. And instead, no, 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 fueled by this hope of she's included in God's story, she speaks her own hope-filled words. She takes initiative. I love this. And as she steps into God's story, she becomes someone else herself. She's no longer a Moabite. I mean, she is, but she's no longer identified as a Moabite, an outsider, a gleaner, a daughter-in-law. She is now called a woman of valor. In the Hebrew, it's an eshet chayel. Not an outsider, a full participant in God's story, a woman of valor. This is who she is. And that happens again and again as people find themselves in God's story. When you find that you're in a completely different story than the one you have always been telling yourself, you find yourself a new person. You gain a new identity. When God calls you into his story, your identity changes. You're no longer whatever you've been telling yourselves. You're no longer bitter or a victim. You're no longer useless or less than. Your identity changes. You are loved. You are significant. You are free to act because God has called you to do so. You are a woman of valor. You are a man of strength. And so Ruth says to Boaz, spread your cloak over me. There's all sorts of word plays in the Hebrew going on. That word cloak is the very same word for what's in some other places translated as wings. And actually, it's the same word used in 2 verse 12 when Boaz says to Ruth, when he first meets you, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. God bless, uh, Boaz blesses Ruth with the protection of God. And now when Ruth says, hide me under your cloak, spread your wings over me. He's remind, she's reminding Boaz of his blessing. And in other words, she's saying, that blessing you promised, you be that blessing for me. Right? So it will be Boaz and his arms who will serve as the protective wings of the Lord for Ruth. And Boaz commits to doing this. And he says, now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. 
And he does even more than Ruth asks. So he promises, he commits to do all this. But then Ruth, you know, she sets out her shawl and she takes a whole truckload of grain home. Again, this image of fullness. God is just pouring out goodness and goodness. Once again, Boaz proves his generosity. Um, He's not here just, you know, a good man. He's not just a good kinsman redeemer fulfilling the law of the land. Boaz in the story, he's almost a stand-in for God, and he's foreshadowing of what God is doing through Jesus Christ. How later on in this same story, the great, great, great grandson of Ruth will live out that same kindness and selflessness that we see in Boaz. That Jesus will likely give up out of his generosity and sacrificially offer himself for the sake of others. But of course, this book is not called the book of Boaz. This is the book of Ruth. Boaz is acting in a plan initiated by the selfless love of Ruth. Boaz acts in faith in response to the courageous, sacrificial love of Ruth, which somehow melts Boaz's heart, changes him, and wins him over so that now he's using his social power and privilege to bless Ruth and Naomi. And now, because Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi are somehow spliced into the family tree of the Messiah, into the line of the family of David, and therefore into the line of Jesus. You see, Ruth has not just brought Naomi's name back from bitterness to fullness, but now she has, as a part of her family, this name above all names. She is part of this way bigger story of God, all through these beautiful, bold, courageous, selfless acts of love of Ruth. Because all of them recognized a truer story for their lives. They are each living out this story of God's kindness. That word kindness comes at three key spots in the book of Ruth. And it's a special word that communicates God's fierce, loyal, covenantal love. This unconditional posture of God to do good. This relentless pursuit that is for you, even if it costs God. This is who God is. And Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are living out that story of that sort of courageous love and sacrificial love, a story of blessing and goodness for others. And it leads to a beautiful ending because it's a story that eventually leads to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that story continues from beyond Jesus Christ because for 2,000 years, Jesus has been taking the unlikeliest little stories and weaving them into his own story, just like he did with Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And he'll do it for you too. He will take your story, and I don't know what story you're telling about yourself, but he'll say, there's actually a better story for you. Let me tell it to you. We are not here by accident. You are made and loved by a God who cares about you more than you could ever imagine. And your story and my story, it gets all messed up and fouled up because that's just the way our world is, right? Sin is the problem, the core problem, and this turning away from God who loves us. And yet that God who relentlessly loves us, one day that God came among us in the person of Jesus. Jesus lived among us, he loved us, he said things no one said, he did things no one ever did, and he died on a cross. And when he died, it looked like every other death, right? 
that this was the end of his story. But it turns out that dying on the cross, when he was doing that, he was doing it for you and for me. And because he was Jesus, the Son of God, he couldn't stay dead. And on the third day, he was resurrected to new life. And ever since then, filled with this glorious new life, Jesus has been coming alongside people like you and me saying, let me tell you another story about your life that you are included in. Friends, your story can be different. Your story can be part of that story, a story of holy purpose where people are loved, where your life is full of significance. I don't know what story you've been telling yourself. I'm pretty sure you think that you know the story you're in. But I wonder, could you be wrong? Right? Could you be in the wrong story you're telling yourself? Could it be you aren't understanding it at all? You can be part of God's story. The story of the sometimes hidden but always present grace of God that redeems and changes and renews us and brings us under his protective wings. That's the story you were meant to be a part of. It can come to you today, and hope can be yours today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for story. Thank you for this beautiful story of Ruth that that gives us this beautiful hint that we were made for something far more. God, I pray that you would make that invitation so plain, so clear to all of us. Whether we have heard the story a million times before, but never fully grasped it for ourselves, or maybe whether we've heard it for the first time, or whether it's come home to us for the first time. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would weave all of our lives into this big, beautiful story you are telling. It's such a story of hope and joy and goodness. May we be storytellers in this world too. May we go out and tell this beautiful story to others, letting them know there is another story for this world. We need not despair. We need not be afraid because there is a good God at work among us. Thank you that you are here. Make us a church that is bold as we live out the hope that you speak to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen.